As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, Sexuality, Work, Extraction, Art, Theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is broadly defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and art. How exactly do we define our work, and how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already racialized and sexualized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are a means of relating through work to each other. I hope they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. Don't think with wiping the bodies that you can wipe the idea. Folklore, heritage, traditions, all of this is Palestine. Uh, we know that life is precious, but also everything that goes around that life and everything that makes that life possible and alive is important. And this includes embroidery, this includes stories, this includes memories, dreams, wishes. All of this is Palestinian. It's not only the body that is Palestinian. Today's conversation is with Palestinian documentary photographer and visual storyteller Rasha Aljundi and Palestinian collective experimental designer, artist, architect, and performer Michel Jabarin. Michel has been working in the intersections between art, illustration, comics, graphic design, identity design, branding, animation, videography, multimedia production, theater, spatial design, UX, UI, and business entrepreneurship, with a focus on humanitarian and environmental causes. He's collaborated with Russia over the course of several years, most recently in their project Cacti, a visual statement against the silencing of Palestinian voices in Germany. The fact that people actually brought down the wall with their own hands, with their own hammers, is amazing. So for me, they actually should be the first people to understand us, not really repress us. <laughs> it should be the other way around in my head. Rasha is a Palestinian documentary photographer and visual storyteller who grew up in the United Arab Emirates and studied in Lebanon. She's worked with several civil society organizations in the Near East and Africa and is the 2022 Ian Perry grant recipient. In this special episode on Occupied Palestine, we speak about Rasha and Michelle's work as cultural creators and activists and what they're now doing in resistance and to raise awareness about the ongoing crisis in Gaza. When did you first feel like you became a working body? A working body. I think that I feel like I became a working body since the day I was born <laughs> because um, if we're talking about art or different forms of art or culture, since maybe vague memories of the age of three, but I think they become more solidified at the age of five, was of parties and dancing and, you know, different types of belly dancing and getting together with family and friends and so on as, uh, as a child and music all around. So I think you're always a working body when you're, <laughs> when you're dancing, when you're, when you're kind of joining that rhythm. And Depke, of course, which is a Palestinian dance and this present in many uh, celebrations, uh, whether they are official celebrations of weddings or, or something like that, or even informal at a home, you know, after dinner or something, people just get up and start dancing. So I think I consider myself that I started becoming a working body since the, the first day I basically danced with anybody. But um, in terms of photography, what I do now as visual storyteller, I 
really shifted my whole focus uh, from working in the humanitarian slash development sector to visual storytelling um, in the last five years only. I mean, I lived in so many countries. Um, I was born in Jordan and grew up in the UAE, <laughs> the, the life of a Palestinian, and then went to study in Lebanon uh, from my university. And from there, I just started working in that field, starting with a small civil society in Lebanon. But then that took me to uh, Yemen, um, South Sudan, Sudan, Egypt, Nigeria, and Kenya more recently. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been um, a trip. But I have a lot of question marks about that field of work and about the sector, especially related to the funding that goes into it. And that's um, since I, of course, as everybody who starts somewhere and grows up in, in one field of work, I climbed up the ladder and then I can see where the money is coming from and how the conversations around the funding and the conversations about humanitarian aid or development aid are really feeding into a certain foreign policy agenda at the end of the day. And we see it today as well in in Occupy Palestine and many countries as well. Well, I would agree with Russia that maybe starting from the the moment each one of us is born, but I don't know if, if I would define it as a working body. I feel that I was since the day I was born, and then just being aware of what's happening around me, especially being born and, and raised uh, in occupied Palestine, um, my body was a reflection, my body was a mirror to what's happening there. And uh, maybe also my family giving, or being a little bit smart to give some tools to us as children in that household to to use uh, because not everyone can speak with words um, so I started speaking with with a pencil and a paper um, and with that uh, I think since news and things that were happening around us the, the, the TV screen um, and walking in the streets uh, my village being exactly next to um, a military uh, street where all the Israeli jeeps and tanks were passing by and uh, banning any person from going to the streets. Um, so I think that pen and paper or pencil and paper were a tool to speak about that. I don't know if I would define it as a working body, though, uh, but definitely it was uh, one major point that shifted or created, paved the way uh, through the years to reach the point where at the moment I'm practicing this kind of daily practice, daily thoughts, um, daily wishes, daily dreams, uh, speak out to myself and to others as well, trying to communicate and influence through this kind of quote-unquote working body so for me maybe that that moment when I was three years old with that pencil and paper because I remember it very clearly and I still have that drawing as well made me reach the point of using different kind of arts and experience or put myself in the uh, in the position of not saying no to anything trying to experiment with everything um, made me just blend, put all of these things in a, in a blender uh, from illustration to graphics to theatrical performance to um, to singing, to architecture, anything that is related to visually and physically speaking with people. Uh, all of that put me in that position um, of being that kind of, again, working body. 
What makes you unsure of whether to call it a working body or what's coming up for you when, when that word is used? Well, maybe uh, just using the word working, we are a body, of course, but what pushes us towards making an action won't be necessarily considered as a working thing. It's it's kind of a chain, it's kind of a sequence of things and events and uh, memories and uh, interactions that puts us in a position to do an action uh, because we are not in a utopian world. Uh, uh, if we were in a, in a utopian world, we would be the, the action to do things. And in that case, I would say that, yes, I might be a working body at that moment. Uh, because I take the initiative to do things. And just highlighting the point of childhood, at, uh, at least. But because we are pretty much influenced with a, a, a very cruel uh, reality, specifically talking about Palestine, this puts us all the time since childhood in the position of being a reaction to what's happening in our childhood specifically, but then with being aware of what's happening around us and uh, learning how to take the initiative, we gradually become an initiating body uh, of action. We stop being just a reaction, and that's where also armed resistance and resistance in all of its ways takes place. If you want to liberate not only your homeland, but if you want to liberate yourself, uh, as a person and then inf influence others to find their freedom, you have to be the action, not only just a reaction. And at that moment, you become a working body. Mm, that's a really interesting way to think about work that I don't think anyone's really brought to this ongoing conversation. It's really interesting. What made you decide to switch from humanitarian work to being a cultural creator, Russia? In terms of making images, I've been always making that. I feel like the camera was part of my family since uh, childhood and teenagehood and so on. The old Minolta that my family had that generated a lot of our uh, analog images are st is still there and I fixed it recently. It was always part of the family to make images. But I think the idea that I was, you know, I worked in all these different countries and, and interacted with all these different people. And, and I felt that there's another way to contribute to humanity. <laughs> more than just giving a package of food to someone who's in need. It could also be just telling their story um, or telling a story that is not the obvious stuff, you know, because people are bombarded with stories all the time that are so fast these days because of social media, boom, 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 images just coming up and then vanishing after two seconds. And I feel like as, as documentary uh, photographers or culture creators that go a little bit deeper or find another angle to tell a story, I think that's, uh, I, th I saw how that's more profound on people. And it taught me a lot. So um, I felt like this is more important work to do. Uh, maybe it's not, I'm not idealistic, it's not going to change the world or, or you know, <laughs> resolve any conflicts or issues or uh, occupations out there. But I think it's still important and it does impact, it does go into people's hearts and minds uh, more effectively than, you know, news flashes and news stories and people just throwing money at the end of the year during Christmas at an organization just to give a parcel of food. I feel like they need to, to know the story behind that human being. On the other hand, also, I found a problem with the packaging of stories that many organizations are shifting from 
to be fair to them. But uh, originally, a lot of the stories were actually dehumanizing people, you know, showing this cliched vision of the hungry African child or the poor hijabi Muslim woman in an Arab country or, you know, uh, victim victimizing people all the time, really whitewashing a lot of the, the narrative and applying a colonial narrative to a lot of the campaigns, there were fundraising campaigns from the public. And I, I, I thought that was very problematic, you know, especially coming from Palestine and coming from a region that is always, you know, bombarded with a lot of misrepresentation and recently calls for a complete wiping, you know, off the face of the earth. So I feel like there is another way to counter all of this narrative through storytelling. How does your storytelling um, counter this kind of colonialist narrative? First of all, I'll give you an example from my project Red Soil. I'll stay away from Palestine for a bit. <laughs> And that's, uh, I did that in Kenya for a period of eight months in total with the Maasai in one part of the country. And the narrative is always, um, has been, even by the, I'm talking about the current government, I'm not talking only about the British gov colonial government uh, in history, It has been like vilifying these pastoral tribes around the country. And it's just painting a brush around all of these pastoral tribes as they are thieves and bandits and they're armed and so on. They are armed. <laughs> That's true. But it doesn't mean that they're bandits. The issue goes beyond that. And the issue is the lack of access to enough land to graze. And that goes back to the British colonial government and stealing of lands, land grabs, the continued post-independence, uh, unfortunately. And then the greenwashing that goes with that is that, oh, these are conservancies for the elephants and the zebras and the lions and so on. And so to attract tourism and money uh, to the country and then label all the other communities, the indigenous communities of the land as terrorists or as thieves and bandits and so on and have a whole army, the Kenyan army and the British army stationed in that part of Kenya to fight these bandits. So... For me, this is a huge colonial narrative. Uh, and to counter it is really to go down there, spend a lot of time and just tell the story from their perspective. Uh, many Kenyans, I found out, don't know the history. And if they know the history, they know part of it, not the whole picture. And they don't even know that that part of Kenya where I photographed, it's a small county. They're, Kenya is divided into counties. The county that I photographed is like the size of, I think, I compared it to North Carolina in the U.S., but 54% of it is conservancies owned by white people, basically, quote-unquote quote saving the animals. And these conservancies are fenced, but this land doesn't belong to these people. And it was traditionally actually land grabs and the Maasai were pushed into the reserve for further north. And these lands were actually small parcels. If I looked at the colonial map uh, that was there in the archive, small parcels of land for British settlers for farming. When after independence, a lot of the settlers actually left back and a few of them stayed and became Kenyan citizens. The Ken Some of the Kenyan citizens, descendants of these uh, settlers, actually took whole parcels of lands. And we're talking about tens of thousands of square kilometers and change it into conservancy with armed guards and everything. Like, this is a colonial narrative that, you know, we we have to kind of counteract. You know, what is this? What is the, the idea of putting an, a rhino in the middle of your land and fencing it off and then making a lot of money out of it? Um, Michael, you were saying that you picked up your pen or your pencil when you were three and you've been drawing ever since, I guess. I guess I always think of it as a as a sacrifice to be able to balance the the creative life and the survival life. I'm curious how you've made that balance. I think uh, since the beginning, I did not take that route as as a career. Uh, it started and still uh, going 
in the direction of using this kind of uh, language and tool of communication um, to to influence. And even when I work on projects that indeed they gain me some income, I select what kind of projects I work on. So it's not like every customer that comes, I would just put my soul into the work and uh, my time and effort to, uh, yeah, ju just to feed into that capitalistic uh, system. Every time I uh, someone con contacts me for something to work on, I have to all the time uh, see how it matches the principles that I am using this kind of way of communication uh, to influence. So till now, luckily, most of the projects that I worked on are related to humanitarian or environmental causes that I really want to have a hand and uh, and at least positive, positively impact people through these uh, visuals and uh, um and physical performances. Until now, again, this is a, a very crucial point for me when I work, because art, design, whatever we want to call it, the thing that the things that I'm doing at the moment, since my childhood till now, and developing all the time, working on uh, learning more on how to, to use these tools, is for a specific reason. It's not for income. Income comes as a like just as as a result of practicing that, and all the time I have to learn how to be smart enough to combine these two together, not for the purpose of becoming a rich person, but for the purpose of maintaining this kind of strategic loop of feeding each one to the other so that I survive, so that I can not only survive for myself, but also to put that kind of income or money into things that I can help others with. So this is very important for me as well. And that, yeah, I would say it is an income, but income is not on the top of the pyramid of my priorities. Yeah, I noticed that you made um, your images, put them in a Google Drive that people can access to use um, in as, as activists, I assume. And um, of course, with the idea that they wouldn't use it commercially and that they would make a donation. But I was really um, impressed by this kind of comments. Um, of course, at the same time, I worried through making your artworks um, widely available, they ever felt like uh, exploited by that. I think it's a choice. Of course, you cannot control every, everything. Whenever you put your art or work online, it becomes in the hands of the people. Uh, in that case, you have to choose whether whether you prioritize protecting yourself and artwork or really putting it in the hands of people so that they can spread the word, do initiatives through it and um, uh, create some space, uh, not for, for them uh, only, but also to use it as a tool to spread the story and um, talk about what's happening on the ground at the moment. So that was the purpose, like just put, to put the artwork there in the hands of the people so that they have this kind of tool to uh, to open these spaces between each uh, each other, because this is how stories pass. You don't just put the, the, the image out there and then expect people to look at it and learn. You have to really put it in their hands and then create some kind of space and time for themselves to to look into it and to, to learn more about it. Uh, so for me, through this artwork, through previous artworks, the idea was all the time to not only put the artwork there, but also to put the background story of it. And uh, if you look also even between the nine artworks that are now at, at the moment available for people to download and to print, each one of them speaks about a background story that comes from Palestine, things that I lived there, 
things that I want to, wanted to speak about. And uh, some of these stories, even Palestinians don't know about the details uh, of these stories, because lots of them speak about uh, systematic oppression within uh, the Israeli system itself and how it deals with Palestinians. We're not talking about only just killing and uh, putting people in prison and confiscating land and demolishing houses and bombing people. But there are lots of things that people cannot see, how a satellite colonial regime is controlling every single border uh, that uh, Palestinians uh, have to deal with. Their, their goods, their exporting, importing, everything that uh, that's related to details of daily life of Palestinians, it's pretty much connected with that, uh, with that oppression and that occupation. And if you speak about it, like just in words, then words will evaporate at some point. People forget. But if you, if you put it in, the, in a visual way, even if it's not reflected directly in the artwork, but the background story is pretty much connected to the artwork, every time they look to this artwork, they will, rem they will remember the story and they will pass it on. Every time someone sees that artwork and asks, like, what is it about? You have to speak about that background story. So it becomes a tool. And in that case, I would put the priority of passing the story to people above the priority of protecting my artwork and myself from exploitation. The repression of Palestinian voices has been going on for a very long time, especially in Germany. And you did some work about that. Cacti. Uh, cacti, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about this work and how this is continuing to happen right now? Yeah. So I came to Berlin last year for a period of four months um, to start to try to find uh, navigate my way through the city. And because I know there's a lot of culture creators here and I wanted to create a network for myself as well. So I came here and I was working already on another project that is focused on Palestinians in exile. And one of the people who took part in it is Michel. And when he was narrating his story, he mentioned a quote outside of one of the uh, tourist uh, locations here um, uh, regarding the wall. The, the space is actually opposite Checkpoint Charlie. And opposite Checkpoint Charlie, there is a sign that is, you know, kind of telling people what it is about so that they can go buy a ticket and, and check out the, the wall. And the sign says, imagine, you know, being uh, surrounded by a four meter high wall and a 70 kilometer, I think, long barrier with a death uh, zone and blah, 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 blah. I mean, <laughs> I don't exactly remember the right quote, but it's written in English, German, French, I think. So for in Spanish for tourists, obviously. Um, and so he when he first came to the city three years ago and saw this, he told me this really triggered me because I felt insulted. Uh, my family is actually, actually divided because of the occupation, annexation wall. So I was like, yeah, because I know that monument and I know that sign from before meeting him. But obviously the impact on a Palestinian who is actually, you know, who has grown, grew up around the wall being constructed around him. And then his family actually literally being divided because of the of the wall is, is another, you know, another dimension. And the wall in Palestine, which I have seen in Occupy Palestine, if I may correct that, uh, is, is double the size of the Berlin Wall. Actually, it's eight meters in some parts, nine meters even it gets. Uh, and it's obviously very long uh, and it snakes through the, the land. So um, with sniper towers and so on, so it's very sophisticated. It's way more sophisticated now. So for me, it kind of resonated with me. And 
I've been coming to Germany many times before, and the whole the whole time I was like always questioning this history that Germans always are. You know, today is November 9th, so everybody today is bowing their heads for five minutes to remember Kristallnacht and so on. So I'm like, okay, and then five minutes later, everything is over, and then they go out, and then I get this like, you know. Um, this lack of awareness of their own colonial history beyond, you know, beyond the Third Reich, because, you know, Hitler didn't come from vacuum. Um, and the whole white supremacy thinking that produced, at the end of the day, this was the result, the Holocaust, that was the end result. But it was happening in many, many, many other contexts by other colonial powers as well. But their own colonial history that actually resulted in that is completely absent from Germans, really. I mean, absolutely, there's zero knowledge. If they know anything, they only know maybe about one incident or one genocide in Namibia. That's it. They don't know about Tanzania, Cameroon, uh, Burundi. I mean, a lot of other countries that then became these uh, these names of these countries. So it's just, it was always mind-boggling. And then I meet Michelle, I meet other people, and I hear about the crackdown that happened in 2022. And so I, kind of a, a mixture of feelings. I took a break from Germany, went away to Jordan for Christmas and New Year's, and then came back with this idea that I actually want to use the monuments that are here, especially in Berlin, very nicely laid out for visitors and commemorating all these different uh, points in history, whether it's the Holocaust or the wall, and the, 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 the fact that people actually brought down the wall with their own hands, with their own hammers, is, you know, amazing. So for me, they actually should be the first people to understand us, not really repress us. <laughs> it should be the other way around in my head. And I decided I kind of like uh, took Michelle out one day to be my model <laughs> just to try out things. Uh, and then when things when I saw that things are working out, I made a call for some anonymous volunteers. I mean, I wanted to keep them anonymous for their own protection. Um, of course, I know who they are, but uh, the images are a mixture of people's faces completely covered or blurred. Uh, and we're using the camera techniques basically uh, to hide their identities. Um, and I chose these frames at the end anyway uh, for the final edit. Um, so that was that was it. So I used the Holocaust Memorial. I used the wall, the Berlin Wall. Um, I used the uh, the bridge where the people crossed on November 9th. Uh, and for the first time, they crossed from one side to the other and were free, you know. And it, so the project really talks about our frustration and anger, but also talks about our hope. So kind of I'm trying to kind of draw the attention of the hopefully the German uh, viewer, that this is not just about pointing fingers, but it's actually pointing fingers that we should be together on this, not the other way around, in fact. Um, and then actually during the edit, because I because of the fear that people have, although I said you're going to be anonymous, but still people didn't want to take part in a visual project, I s thought of asking Michelle to illustrate a few images. Uh, so kind of, then it became a very cool multidisciplinary uh, or multimedia project because now it combines, yeah, it combines now some of his work, uh, line art um, in some of the images. And the chosen images are really because I wanted to enhance the story behind them or because like visually, I felt like it needs a little bit more to tell the story. Maybe maybe I didn't need Michelle's work if I had enough volunteers, you know. Um, so some of them have, he added more bodies to the work or uh, the shadows of bodies. Um, but I also think that, you know what, it worked out even better with the illustrations because now it really looks really more catchy. People always say, but the, the ones that are illustrated are the best. <laughs> so I'm like, great. So it worked. It worked 
you know, it worked for uh, for the for the better for this for this project. Yeah. So this was really a combination of my anger, my frustration, mixed with all the testimonies that I heard from Michelle and other people who were involved in arrests and so on uh, last year, and then I saw it again happen this year. As a Palestinian, I still cannot believe what is being said in Western media or among politicians, Western politicians, especially um, because nowadays it's just, uh, I think, reached a level of, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't. it's not even logical what's going on. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I think that the project is actually more, uh, more relevant now, which I didn't know a few months ago, right? I thought it was just... You know, we didn't even have a chance to exhibit it yet, but uh, we produced an interactive zine out of it, which now we're using to sell and donate all the money going to Gaza when we're when we're able to send the money. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I have a U.S. passport. I have this privilege to cross so many borders. Uh, we celebrate the, the fact that the Berlin Wall came down and yet we have our own wall, you know, between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, and we kind of generally celebrate the idea that there's national borders and just sort of accept that uh, some people should be able to cross borders and others shouldn't. And that and we so seldom question it. I think um, a lot of us who have the privilege to cross borders also don't question it because we just use our privilege. You know, and um, we we don't really talk about it enough because it might mean losing our privilege. Who knows? You know, and if I may add, I mean, American taxpayers money is financing the annexation wall in uh, in the occupied in occupied Palestine and financing a lot of other walls around because uh, now the wall walls are becoming in fashion with <laughs> with a lot of fascist governments out there. Anybody who has a problem with somebody, they just build a wall. <laughs> and these are financed mostly by uh, either uh, the U.S. government or other Western governments that are allies to that regime uh, or that system. And that, you know, doesn't exclude any of the other uh, Arab regimes. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in in the U.S., between the Republicans and the Democrats, either way, we're financing these wars and financing Mm -hmm. these militaries and and, and walls and occupations. Um, so that's really it's really um, frustrating to say to say the least. Also, to know that um, somehow as uh, as an artist accepting funding and maybe this goes back to what we we kind of touched on earlier we, if i accept funding from something that trickles down from the german government you know that's somehow related to the german state um, or the U.S. state, although I've never received U.S. arts funding. Um, I don't know if the U.S. still has arts funding. Um, but uh, it's still related somehow to also to the German state and um, the way that they still prop up these. Uh, you know, they're still there's absolutely making no room for um, pro-Palestinian voices, which yes, is just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely they will control whatever you produce with that funding. Just before coming here, I was um, going through my Instagram feed and I saw a Palestinian-Jordanian filmmaker just turned down a $40,000 grant uh, from the Red Sea Film Festival in Saudi Arabia because of the stance that, which is no stance that Saudi Arabia is taking, basically. So he just turned down $40,000 to finance his film. And and he put a statement out and I thought, you know, I, I, I still have goosebumps whenever I see it because he's probably the only artist so far. There's a lot of silence in the art world. You know, there's a lot of like ghosting, you know, <laughs> um, and if they speak out, they use like the wrong terms or the I, I would, what I call a whitewashed statement. Um, but 
most of the people didn't even speak out, uh, even on my in my list or my feed of my contacts, you know. And uh, this guy was like, I don't want I'm not I don't want the forty thousand dollars, and I'm not gonna attend the festival. And I don't want. I mean, that's basically my stand. I think my dignity and what's happening to my people, above all, it's it takes a lot of courage and dignity and a lot of. Um, You know, I think he's great. Wow, it's amazing. Yeah, because right now it's really disappointing to see how many um, art institutions who talk about um, decoloniality and uh, anti-racist work, etc., uh, are afraid to put anything on their websites. Yeah, the problem is that everybody is is comfortable talking about uh, anti-colonialism, anti-colonial movements, or colonialism in general, and the concepts and how to decolonize after when it's in history, right? Or I don't know if it's even in history in many contexts, it's still going. But again, not the classic uh, version of 19th century colonialism, except in occupied Palestine. But everybody, I mean, including academics, they just love to talk about it as if it's history and it's in the syllabi and so on. And it's taught to students in fancy universities and colleges. But I'm like, you have to talk about it as it's happening now. This is a role of the cultural creator, the academic and so on, the writer. Everybody in this uh, sector has to talk about things now and find the solutions and raise their voices. And, and you know, as I say, always raise hell, you know, re- resign, you know, stage strikes, uh, put pressure with any tool that you have because everybody can be a soldier you know it doesn't only it takes a lot of people that's true but I think you can always do something within your power and in that position uh, and the f- first and foremost for educators especially is really to talk about in real time not when it's history you know and now I just see that it's fashion to talk about colonialism whether it's in the art uh, sector or field or in the academic field when it's history mm. yeah Um, Michelle, right now, um, I just missed you. You were doing a adult coloring workshop. Do you want to tell me about that work that you're doing now? And I guess you've been doing it for a while. Uh, the idea came from Russia wanting also to do kind of an embroidery workshop, starting with Palestinians or other people who come from Arab origin and maybe extending it to other people. And uh, the goal behind it started, I think, with with your feeling of with all of what's happening now in occupied Palestine, there is... Well, we hope that this uh, heritage and this folklore and this tradition won't uh, be wiped out with the people who are being wiped out. And we wanted to open kind of uh, a way for people to learn to pass this knowledge and to pass these traditions to people who don't know about them. Palestinians specifically, or, or people who come from Palestinian origin. It, it's kind of a stance that says, don't think with wiping the bodies that you can wipe the idea. Folklore, heritage, tradition, all of this is Palestine. Uh, we know that life is precious, but also everything that goes around that life and everything that makes that life possible and alive is important. And this includes embroidery, this includes stories, this includes memories, dreams, wishes, um, uh, every all of this is Palestinian. It's not only the body that is Palestinian. And uh, from that, I think with also Russia's advice again and her influence, we came up with the idea of maybe also we can open a space for people to learn about Palestine through artwork. So the coloring actually was just an excuse for us to tell stories. And the first workshop that happened was with children, giving them this platform to just 
get their time and brains busy with coloring, but at the same time telling them stories through these artworks about Palestine and from Palestine. And not only, again, not only uh, the pain and uh, and resist- resistance, but also the beauty and uh, the traditions and the, the embroidery and everything that, that goes around what makes Palestinians pretty much attached to their ho- to their homeland. And then the idea of coloring is not only for children it should also be open for all ages we decided to uh, do another workshop with adults now that workshop should have been a very simple action where you just find a place to host you and uh, bring the tools and gather people and do it but uh, it seems that it was enough for the german police and german government to know that there is something palestinian happening and knowing that the the title of that workshop was from the river to the sea to target the place that uh, uh, decided to help us and host the, the event and they called that uh, that that space four times by phone um uh stressing on the order of not hosting the event otherwise there will be consequences so we had to for for the safety of the place and for the safety of the people who are resident there uh we we tried to find another place to to host it and that happened moreover on the on november the 5th which was uh, the day of the event uh, a police car was parking in front of the old place surveilling everyone who's, who was passing by or uh, entering the space. And, and that also, uh, it was, it's, it's also important to, to note that on the day that they called the, uh, the, that place four times, the, also they sent a police unit to the place searching the rooms and asking about all the events that were happening in that space. So despite all of that and despite the, uh, in spite of the German government and the German police, uh, the event took place. Uh, because again, as uh, as I wrote also uh, documenting uh, uh, the event later on, what little that they know is that as much pressure as you put on Palestinians, as much resistance you will face. Uh, believing that Palestinians uh, will follow the white mentality of uh, if you uh, uh, that it's going to be easy uh, for the government or any kind of regime uh, to silence people by uh, intimidating them and harassing them, surveilling them. This is not going to work with Palestinians. I was born with a context that worked really hard to impose this reality on us. And this regime, the Israeli regime, as well as uh, Germany is following the same path, they're failing deeply failing because they say they keep using the same colonial methods of uh, repressing people and silencing them not knowing that whenever you have the right to to resist people will keep using it uh, with all means and we will not hide as we say in arabic truth cannot be hid by a son truth is way bigger than anyone this moment right now when we are witnessing genocide in Gaza is, uh, I mean, I don't know that I can find the words. I can't imagine what you are feeling and experiencing. Um, I thank you for even taking the time to be here and to discuss this. Some of what I've noticed is that there are more people out on the street 
that maybe people are coming out being a bit more vocal, at least in social media, maybe more people on the street um, supporting the Palestinian cause. I'm curious if this gives you any kind of hope uh, and what you must be feeling that also this level of violence also maybe somehow motivated people to finally take action when this has been going on for a very, very long time. It is sad. That's, and it's angering, uh, it's raging, that it is for the people to go out to the streets and challenge the system that is silencing everyone. They needed to know that more than 10,000 Palestinians were shattered into pieces in order to move their asses and go to the streets. It's enraging. And just also following the the same narrative of uh, mainstream media, even the people who are going to the streets, there are lots of them still sticking to the story of mainstream media that, uh, yeah, all of this has start, uh, uh, started only on the 7th of October. Uh, we call for a ceasefire because, you know, when you do a ceasefire, then, um, uh, then uh, everybody's life is going to go back to normal. Uh, this is th- these are things that you you feel in the streets, even with people going outside, for action actually to to happen. Now, uh, what makes us what makes us raged more than anything else is that even with change in people's minds and opinions happening, it's happening very slowly. It's very slow, and this puts us in in a position like f- feeling that. Uh, maybe the 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 pace of uh, of exterminating Palestinians will be faster than people waking up. This is exactly what happened with lots of indigenous populations around the world. People woke up way late after this kind of extermination happened. This is the dangerous part, and this is the raging part about it. We want people to to go to the streets. We want people to speak out, but we want them to be brave enough to do that quickly and not just depend on specific resources to know their information. Again, we say the truth is very clear. And if you want to know the truth, you have to look for it. It won't just show up on a social media page for you. You have to do your job because every single person around the world specifically uh, who, people who come from uh, countries and gov- and ruled by governments who they elected uh, that come from colonial background, every single one of them is complicit to what's happening at the moment. Every single one of them is living and they're piling their wealth based on the stealing and killing of other populations, including us. So for me... It's important to see people out there, but a demo won't change the world. What changes the world is real action. What changes the world is not just sending emails and letters to your government. You have to do strikes. You have to close the streets. You have to absolutely close down the economic system in your country so that your countries know that they cannot do anything. They cannot survive without changing their policies. They have to know that their populations, their civil, uh, their citizens are not accepting what's happening. And that won't happen only with a demo, with 100,000 uh, demo, with a million uh, person on the streets. That won't change anything. They will just give a space for people to go out, release their rage, and then they go back home. There has to be a continuous strike all the time, being on the streets. Everything should stop. 
that everything changes. Otherwise, two days, three days, one week from now, there won't be Gaza. There won't be Palestine. There will, there will, the only thing that will be remaining is just another successful story of a, a settler colonial, a colonial regime that's still standing. That this is going to go also beyond Palestine. This, this is also a message for any Arab audience that is listening at the moment. Because it's not stopping about uh, the borders of Palestine. This is extending way beyond. Because Israel, this colonial, this settler colonial regime is not built on just stealing land. It's built on benefiting from a military and technology industry that serves other conflicts and other battles and other killing of people around the world. So this is not only about Palestine. This is about everyone. This is about the life of every single person on this planet. I absolutely agree with you. I wonder what is the role of an artist in this moment whose art doesn't uh, directly touch upon this topic? Any person with any discipline, with any kind of practice, with any kind of profession or job can do something. One of the things that made me all the time feel that uh, starting from living in Palestine and then moving to Germany, the belief of butterfly effect whatever small action you think you can do will make a change whether you see it or not people have they have to believe that but what's more important than this is that don't put yourself in a position to feel comfortable with the simple action that you did and believe that you can do more this is a duty for a prefer- for every person for every artist to do you can use whatever means you have to send a message and to do uh, to be part of the influence and the impact that can happen. If you believe that you can do uh, 10%, then do 20%. Uh, this is important because, again, this is not only about uh, just a population on a geographical location uh, on this planet. This is beyond. Fighting colonialism does not stop with ending colonialism in that place. It goes beyond. This goes to both of you. Have you noticed the way in which your work has made impact and made change? And what what helps you notice that? I don't think that my work is that important to, to cause change. But I think I, I noticed that sometimes it um, raises awareness, people's uh, knowledge about a certain story or a certain aspect of the story. The work that I'm doing on Palestinians in exile, because uh, it's individual stories, and so they're different, but they also have common themes. It's multimedia, so it has audio and and uh, photography as well, and sometimes archival images. I think uh, I use it actually as a platform sometimes to, to kind of, some of the stories are like a stepping stone to go beyond that story and share with the audience a background that this person has shared without knowing that they shared something really critical about the history of the colonization of Palestine. There was one participant, very young, in his um, mid-20s, who didn't, he, he said, I asked my grandfather what happened. Why, wh- how did you leave your land? You know, what happened? How could you leave your land? He was like accusing him. And so he told him like, there was these European settlers that came and at the beginning there were families. So we started like giving them food and so on. And I gave, him, gave them even part of our um, Um, uh, there was a house or something, an empty space so they can take it. And then suddenly there was these armed groups, you know, these these settlers became armed um, and we were pushed off of our land. 
with using arms. So it was forceful. But his grandfather had passed away. So this whole he can remember. But actually what his grandfather has highlighted is all the um, Jewish migration waves that started in 1878 and continued until um, the, the highest wave was really uh, towards the The, the establishment of the Zionist entity um, and after um, the Holocaust had happened, so towards um, the mid-40s. So I was like, no, you just said something very profound. And he actually even apologized while while doing the recording. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, my story is not very good. I'm like, I think you just said something that will just open a whole chapter of stories. And I feel like This is also important just to tell, give people more information. I was thinking the other day, and I kind of shared it on social media yesterday, that we need to take this moment in history and re-educate ourselves about our own history. Because if you want to be a culture creator or any person who does anything in life, but you also want to know about your own um, fight and struggle, you need to read. And this, there's a generation that doesn't read simply, you know. I'm happy with podcasts and all the the information that is that is you know shared in a different form now. But even people don't have even the headspace to listen for longer than you know five minutes these days. Even videos that are longer than two minutes are becoming you know oh I can't watch this it's too long if it's four minutes or something. But I still kind of insisted that you know. If you want to do something for your own struggle, but also for somebody else's struggle, if you want to join somebody else's cross-sectional fight, I think you need to learn about your own first. And we have a lot of resources. And I think the colonization of Palestine is one of the most documented, I, and from my readings, struggle. At least I read a lot. I'm, I'm still working so hard to read even more uh, about our struggle in order to have that tool and the enough tools to either And we should do something, do the 20% or the 30%, uh, but also educate others. I think this is our role. And kind of counter these these narratives, you know, that um, Zionist entity it was so good in stealing and painting a picture uh, for the whole world since its establishment, even before, even during the British colonization of Palestine. So there's a lot of the narrative now is, of course, linked to racism and Islamophobia, which is the biggest, the bigger umbrella that kind of moves the whole of the narrative now, especially these, these last this last month. Um, so it's a bigger, bigger umbrella of racism uh, towards Palestinians. And we need to kind of use, read and learn more and use all these different tools in order to be able to also counter argue some of these very hollow arguments that put put one in rabbit hole, you know, uh, essentially. And that's what Zionists and their supporters try to do with any conversation, with any uh, post, with any um, video, narrative, whatever it is, uh, speech and so on. I think the last, the other role, and I want to add to, your, you know, Michelle's uh, answer is that colonizers, whether it's Zionists now in Palestine, Occupy Palestine, or their collaborators, whether it's the Palestinian Authority or the other Arab uh, governments uh, that are neo-colonizers um, and data collaborators in the colonization of Palestine, they have successfully uh, broken down the civil society structures and civil society in any culture or any society in the world just coming together, whether it doesn't have, it's just civil society cooperatives or women's groups, or these are civil society bodies and groups, really is the core um, element for, for a society to survive shocks, whether it's man-made shocks or natural disasters or something. The civil society is the one that comes together. We have these structures broken down 
basically fragmented, especially in colonized and occupied Palestine, because people in the occupied, I don't like to use this language, but let's <laughs> because of people's uh, understanding of how the map looks like, but people in occupied West Bank are living in cantons, and these cantons are sometimes even cut in half, right? Physically, but also through the systemic policies of, of you know, fragmenting a society. Without civil society, we really will not survive. And I think our role is to now start gathering and reorganizing ourselves as civil societies, even if it's from outside. Um, these will have a role now outside, but hopefully in the future, in, in, in Palestine inside, in a free Palestine inside, because we need to group together uh, in any structure it is with any purpose that has that is a purpose for a liberated Palestine and for an educated, cultured society to to lead it, to lead its own self, basically. Um, unfortunately, I think these powers have successfully fragmented us so much. So I think this is our role because we have the privilege of being outside. Well, I think there, there are lots of things to be said. But also speaking also from the perspective of uh, a Palestinian who was born and raised in Palestine, one thing that people don't know is that we lived, and speaking for myself, I lived in a time where I was able to move around occupied Palestine and in a time where I was banned and restricted from moving around. I was born in 1993 in Nazareth, which is an occupied Palestine known now as Israel, um, was raised in Jenin, which is now in the occupied West Bank. My father's side of the family are originally from Bejibrin, uh, a depopulated, completely destroyed village in the south of Al-Khalil, Hebron, in occupied Palestine. And my mother's side of the family are from Nablus, but they were forcibly... Um, Uh, displaced and they lost all of their businesses in Yaffa in 1948 also in occupied Palestine. Um, knowing all of that, uh, for Palestinians, uh, Palestine um, is beyond international law. Palestine is historical Palestine. Um, and when we call for freedom, and again, here in the context of Germany, I repeat, when we call for free Palestine from the river to the sea, this means that free Palestine from the river to the sea, and we literally mean it. We talk about Palestine from Jericho in the valleys in the east till Yaffa on the coast in the west. We talk from Safad in the north on the borders of Lebanon till the Red Sea in the south. This is Palestine for Palestinians. Now, people will counter this statement by saying, ah, but there are people who are living there at the moment. And we again say for people who call for the liberation and for, for human rights and for living in dignity, Palestine is all, has been always and is still be, uh, always welcoming people who are standing with liberating the land and people who are in connection with that land and people who are standing with Palestinians in their fight to bring all the plus seven million Palestinians back to their uh, to their homeland. You cannot say that uh, a settler who came from, from I don't know where around the world has the right to the land while the indigenous people are just kicked out of it. Start with bringing Palestinians back to Palestine and then we can speak about what, what goes after that saying that it was very important to mention this this point because all of this living this 
with the memories, with the stories of uh, of my parents, of my grandparents, and still living this story till nowadays, will just put us in a place where we uh, we stand with resistance all the time. Uh, there is no other way to the, to liberate. There is no soft way to liberate Palestine. Because and solely because when you face a brutal occupation that does not recognize you as a human, you have no other way but to face it. Uh, I won't say with the same method, but I would say face it with the with the way that you find fitting to protect yourself and to achieve your goal of, of liberating that land. There is no other way. You cannot face a bullet with a with a rose. Because that bullet is backed with a tank, is backed with warplanes, is backed with now in this year more than $8 billion from the US and the complete unconditional support of the European Union. And even when the people of Gaza in, in their in the march of return, when they did that march every Friday, every single Friday, every month, for I don't know how many months they, they did, they, they did not use any single weapon. And they were faced by snipers, just like playing fun with the people and just shooting them in the legs, in the heads. They were targeting journalists. They were tar targeting people who were worked with with hospitals. Every single person was targeted in these marches of return. And now, just because people were be were able to break the siege and to imagine of going back to the villages and towns that and and cities where they were forcibly displaced from and destroyed by the Zionist militia. Now people are just seeing them as oppressors and invaders, as terrorists. You cannot face a bullet with a rose. This makes me think about the, the metaphor of the, the rose. What is the rose? You know, people often use this cliche, the pen is mightier than the sword. Is the rose the, the pen? Is it something else? Because I, I agree, the sword will not be defeated by something soft. It must be hard. And on the other hand, I, I also feel like the sword will never bring a, a, a sustainable peace either, from my perspective. In, in the long term, it has to be something hard, but, you know, hard like the pen, hard I like think, the artist, maybe. I think they go in parallel. What Ghassan Kanafani, for example, and uh, uh, Najal Ali and lots of other yeah. intellectuals in Palestinian history did was to influence the sword. Meaning that when we write, when we draw, we uh, provide information and thoughts and direction to the um, narrative, uh, yeah. to the narrative, and to people's uh, urge for a revolution, to revolt and to resist. Uh, because if you don't have this kind of guidance, people will just be roaming around and not being able to organize themselves. And that was the role that literature art and lots of other tools was doing at that time and still doing it nowadays. So the power of the pen, the power of the rose, in this case becomes giving influence and directing the sword, the sword, quote unquote, because that can, the, the, the embodying of the sword comes in different ways. Uh, it does not have to be a bullet. But it might be a bullet that does not just uh, erase the, the idea that if you face a weapon with a weapon, but for your weapon to be directed in the uh, correct way for liberation, you have to have some guidance and this guidance comes from the rose. 
You just heard from Palestinian documentary photographer and visual storyteller Rasha Ajundi and Palestinian collective experimental designer, artist, architect, and performer Michel Jabarin. You can read more about them and their work in the show notes. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. The theme music was composed by me and features the voice of performer and actress Lori Baldwin. Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European time on Collaboradio. Afterwards, it's available for streaming wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much, and until next time.